A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult, not impossible, for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. Today's show is going to be one of our best yet, as we have one of the top climate scientists here today discussing our changing climate, permafrost, zombie fires, and why you might not want to drink the glacial runoff on your next mountain expedition. Who is she? Well, you're about to find out. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I want to set the stage for today's show. I've always tried to live by the go big or go home motto. And today, well, we decided to go big and get not just any climate scientists on the show, but one of the top ones in the world. With me here today is Dr. Kimberly Rain Miner. Now, not only is Dr. Miner a research assistant professor at the University of Maine looking at the global risks of climate change, but get this. At NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, she studies risk assessment and system dynamics, is part of the international team on the Arctic Methane Project, is co-chair for the NASA Interagency Forum on Climate Risks, Impacts, and Adaptations, was part of the National Geographic Perpetual Planet Mount Everest Expedition, I'm super jealous on that one, and is an if-then ambassador. Oh. And she's a friend of mine, not that it matters to you, but it matters to me. So without further ado, Dr. Miner, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. I'm really glad to be here. Now, Dr. Miner, before we dive in, as you know, on this show, I love to take sometimes, shall we say, complicated scientific information and break it down such that it's a little more digestible. So in that spirit, I'd love to take your amazing list of accomplishments and titles and do the same here, if you'll permit me. Okay, sure. Let's go. Okay, folks, you know how every once in a while, it seems like for various branches of science, someone comes along that inspires us, is like a rock star of the science world, and their name eventually becomes synonymous with their branch of science. You know, you've got Carl Sagan for astronomy and planetary science, Neil deGrasse Tyson for modern physics, and Michio Kaku for theoretical physics. Well, Dr. Miner is going to be to climate science what they were or are to theirs. Anyone who wants to challenge me on this, I'd be happy to make you a gentleman's bet and see where we're at in five years. And that is why I'm so excited to have Dr. Miner on the show today. It's very kind, Brian. I appreciate it. (laughs) It's so good to have you here. So, Dr. Miner, you and I have discussed narratives before. And why don't we begin with your own? Paint the picture for us. Who is Dr. Kimberly Rain Miner? So I always say when I do outreach that fieldwork has driven my whole life and my whole career. So from when I was a little kid sneaking out of my window so I could sleep outside at night to when I started doing wildlife firefighting right out of college to now when I get the opportunity to travel the Arctic, I've had a lot of opportunities to integrate fieldwork and what we're now calling exploration or observation science into my day-to-day work. It's been amazing. Okay, hold up. On top of all the accomplishments I listed at the top of the show, you were also in firefighting for a while? 
Yeah, I'm I'm red card certified, which basically means that if I needed to pop out and help with forest fires, I I know which tools to use. I've got some friends who are amazing smoke jumpers who jumped out of airplanes into fires, and I never did anything that advanced, but I did my my small part in the firefighting community. You never cease to impress. It's like every time we talk, I learn some other tidbit of something amazing that you've done or are currently doing. (laughs) Now, along those lines, talk to us a little bit about the current research you're doing. Sure. So the Arctic is changing at some estimates up to four times the rate of the rest of the globe. We know that it's warming up to eight times the rest of the globe. And what that functionally means is that it's moving from a cryospheric or frozen system to a more liquid system when we don't know if it's going to be wetter and greener or drier in the future, but we know that it's going to be a complete change from what we have experienced in human history and that that is going to have global implications. Well, that's interesting. And I haven't heard somebody mention that before. So talk to me a little bit about the wetter versus drier. Is one better than the other? Or how does the scientific community view that? So the general idea is that if the Arctic becomes wetter through a variety of reasons and type, including the type of carbon that's emitted, the type of precipitation, the rate of precipitation, the timing of precipitation. And then if you think about all that ice that's melting and all the permafrost that's thawing, there's a buildup of water there. So if that were to be the trajectory that it were to get wetter, there would be more opportunities for vegetation to grow and potentially a greater biomass offset. Basically, carbon is uptaken by the plants and there's less in the atmosphere, although just marginally. The other idea would be with a different kind of carbon entering the atmosphere, that it would become a drier system. Over time, all of this meltwater would kind of go away to different sources, whether it's the ocean or the atmosphere, and you would end up with less vegetation over time. And it would be a little bit more like the tundra that we see now, but without that great source of water that you have in the ice and snow. Thank you so much for that explanation. And while not only fascinating, I think this is a really great example to point out in that the whole climate conversation is extremely nuanced, yet we far too often treat it as a linear conversation when we should be integrating more system-style thinking. And so when you consider the entire complex system that is climate change, I'm curious, what is it that keeps you up at night? So what I'm most concerned right now in the Arctic and what I'd, I want to talk about with all sorts of different audiences to make sure that we're aware is that I think the Arctic has already crossed a tipping point. So one example of this is you see sea ice that used to be there year after year, season after season. You've got the HMS terrors stuck in the ice in June and July. It's a legendary story. And now there's near total loss every summer, which means that any regrowth in the winter is only one year or less of ice. So you don't have these packs of 10-year-old ice, five-year-old ice. And what this basically means is that the system has changed so drastically that we are going to have challenges reverting to the cryospheric system that we were used to for most of human history. You know, as a kid, I was always fascinated by the story of the HMS terror. So I love that you brought that up and you are so right that it serves as such a distinctive juxtaposition to where we are now and really puts into perspective how the idea that we may have already crossed a tipping point is so worrisome. Now, about six, eight months ago, we did a show on the persistence of polar bears and how a changing Arctic would affect them. And as we just mentioned systems thinking, 
Is your research covering the whole dynamic environment or are you partnering with other scientists and then together bringing all those pieces in? Walk me through that a little bit, if you will. So in general, I don't have a lot of training on the squishies. So mammals, plants, birds, anything that has a a nice squishy tendency to it. I don't, I don't really have that much training on. I'm very interested and concerned about uh, flora and fauna on both poles, but that's not really part of what I'm looking at right now. I'm more looking at the carbon potential in the whole Arctic, in the permafrost and other kind of interesting, weird dynamics that are happening because of thaw. For example, the release of nuclear waste that many nations, the US included, has stored in the Arctic. And what that means now that all the permafrost around it is thawing, where is it going to go? Do we know where it is? Are we going to catch it in time? Well, isn't that delightful? Hey, Bob, look over here. Some nuclear waste we buried just popped back up. Who would have thought, huh? (laughs) Lord, I'm going to have nightmares. In in all seriousness, am I correct in understanding that there is also concern about microbes that we may not have seen in modern history or all of human history for that matter? Yeah, so this is kind of a cool thing. And we have an emergent project going on. I'm very excited about it. I can't tell you very much, but it uses some Mars technology to investigate permafrost. Come on, not even a hint? So the idea basically is that there are these extremophilic bacteria and microbes. So they're very used to extreme temperatures, pressures, and they have survived for thousands, maybe even millions of years in the permafrost. And it's just like I always say with pollutants and glaciers, it's absolutely fine. It's not great that they got trapped there, but it's fine as long as it's away from everything else. But now that the permafrost is thawing, these critters have the opportunity to eat carbon around them, grow, become more active, start to multiply and come out into this modern environment. So you have the potential for microbes that were, you know, hanging out with saber-toothed tigers or even earlier to come out and rejoin the modern environment. And we don't really have a good understanding of what that means yet or what microbes we're talking about. So part of our work that we're starting to do is to classify and get an understanding of what kind of microbes are in the permafrost, what the density is, what they're eating, what state they're in, are they alive, are they dead? All of this information is totally emergent. So that's a big part of this very exciting project that we're just about to premiere. So that sounds super cool, despite being slightly horrified at what you might find, if I'm being honest. But two questions on that. One, when you can, will you share that research? And two, on the off chance that there's someone listening now that decides to start ignoring me, but wants to keep an eye on your findings, where might one look to keep in the loop? I try to share most of our science stuff on my social medias. So that's probably a fail-safe option. Um, I also put all of the publications on my website. I'm not sure where we're going to publish these findings yet. I have high hopes, as always, to be in premier journals, <laughs> but we'll we'll see what actually shakes out. So happy to have people chat with me or, or find that stuff on my socials. Knowing you, you'll likely have the cover article. But anyway, no, we'll get some links up on the website, southof2degrees.org, pointing towards you and your website website, but really quickly, what's your website URL? It's actually really simple. It's uh, drkimberlyrain.com. 
That's perfect. Nice and easy. Not like the complicated emails we used to get when Yahoo first came out and there was the giant gold rush for all the names and you ended up with stupid stuff that was so complicated like Maverick 5161986 at yahoo.com. For the record, I never had that email address. Yeah, I just had to log back into my old Yahoo account to reset some stuff and took me a while. It's very complicated. (laughs) You're not lying there, but... On the serious side, I know a lot of your research is centered around permafrost and glaciers. Is there something in particular that attracted you to those fields of study, or is there something else entirely that drives you? So for me, it's not about permafrost, and it's not about glaciers. I would be, I think, just as happy studying coral reefs. For me, it's about preserving wild spaces. And these ecosystems are some of the most interesting, unique diverse ecosystems on the planet where you've got everything from these tiny microbes to polar bears interacting. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And it would just be such a pity, such a disaster if we lost those ecosystems. And it was, you know, a memory that we had to share, got to share with our kids or our grandkids. And so I think it's important for, you know, ourselves for our loved ones and for the people who come after to preserve these wild spaces just as best we can. And that that's also why I do all this uh, pollution research, looking at pollutants in glaciers, because I want to keep working on keeping all of the things that humans emit, whether it's carbon or microplastics, where they belong and not in the wildlands. That was just so incredibly moving. If If you're listening to this show, excuse me, Dr. Minor, but if you're listening to this show, I want you to rewind what, just about a minute and listen to what Dr. Minor just said. Because to me, that was so incredibly powerful and it echoes my own feelings when I reflect on my story I've shared here before on taking my kids to the Great Barrier Reef, but so much more well stated. Now, I know this might seem like a jump here, but you touched on something when you were talking about pollutants that I want to dive into because I'm not sure if you remember, but the very first time we spoke was with regards to your paper, Emergent Risks in the Mount Everest Region in Time of Anthropogenic Climate Change. And I have to say, as a research nerd and a mountaineer, I still think that's one of my favorite papers that I've read. So why don't you walk the audience through it and tell us a little bit about why those findings are so incredibly important. Okay, cool. That's that's funny to hear that. Um, that was a collaborative effort among a number of researchers who worked on the Everest expedition, really, really um, fantastic folks. So the one you're referring to is a preprint, and we had two papers come out of that, kind of looking at all of the different potential changes on Mount Everest. So we had a survey of different geologic changes, including landslides and earthquakes. As you know, there have been problems with earthquakes and landslides at base camp, which is pretty significant for folks who are just hanging out at base camp for months at a time. We talked about the chemical pollution There's a paper coming out by a friend and student of mine, Heather Clifford. It just came out into the World Wide Web yesterday, looking at different metals and other compounds that we found on the mountain. 
There was also discussion around the diversity of flora and fauna. So the Everest expedition was really, really broad. It brought together these diverse international interdisciplinary teams. And the head of the expedition, Paul Majewski, who runs the Climate Change Institute, did a beautiful job synthesizing all of this work and building these teams so that we had a really good time working together. And my risks papers are just a couple of the products that came from that. There's also a, a Disney Plus documentary on the expedition. I'm glad you mentioned that. The Disney Plus doco was really good. Now, again, as a mountain junkie and a science nerd, it's right up my alley, but I can definitely say it's well worth the time to watch. Now, I do want to dive in a little deeper here as you made some really fascinating discoveries, especially with regards to PFAS. So talk to me a little bit about that and what you found. All right. So let's let me take you back to um, 2016 Switzerland. I don't know if you, about you, but I haven't gone anywhere in a while, so I'm very <laughs> excited to talk about other countries. <laughs> yeah, no, I've actually headed to the mountains soon, but it has been far too long. So uh, for my PhD, we were looking at compounds like DDT that had an end date of use or PCBs that had an end date of use that were being found in glacier ice in a couple different places in the world to the to the point where I started. There were studies in the Italian and Swiss Alps and in Canada, and I wanted to add Alaska to that and then do an assessment of what the dangers could be from this legacy DDT that kind of pooled in these glaciers moving down the watershed. So did that whole project, it went quite well. Interesting findings that there was potential risk, especially to some communities that were subsistence hunters and farmers. And so we thought, hey, let's just do the same thing again on Mount Everest. Let's find DDT. We can add this to the data set. This is going to be you know, another great place to do it. Highest mountain in the world. Boom, easy. And so we had a team of mountaineers who were also researchers who put the highest weather station in the world on the balcony of Mount Everest. And while they were there, they very graciously took some snow samples for us and walked them down, which is no small feat adding metal bottles to your gear as you're walking down Mount Everest. Oh, come on. What's a couple pounds on an 8,000 meter peak? <laughs> and so we tested them. And what we, and just for giggles, we, decided to add PFAS into the compounds we were testing for, which is basically Teflon. Okay. So we're just like, Hey, there's this conversation that's emergent about these Teflon particles moving throughout the world or being deposited by people's gear. Let's look for that too. Well, turns out what we found was that the PFAS levels were off the charts. They were significantly higher than any other found to date in any other mountain range. And we tested the samples multiple times, just kind of like, what is going on here? Did we mess up? And it turns out we did not mess up that if you have hundreds to thousands of people walking on the same trail over and over again for, you know, almost a hundred years, leaving their gear, some other folks, you know, still remaining there, then you get a signature of the gear that they have shed as they walked. And I was just explaining this to some other folks yesterday. Basically, what I mean by shedding is 
as your clothing starts to degrade from sunlight, from wind, from any kind of adverse weather situation, which it's keeping you alive from, right? It's important that you're wearing wearing Mm -hmm. this gear. It releases some of these particles and PFAS or Teflon is that water coating particle that is being released as well. And then a compatriot of mine, a colleague of mine found microplastics up at the same location and across the mountain in the same, very similar trajectory to what we did. So there seems to be very ample evidence that we have left a lasting footprint on Mount Everest. So what you're saying is I should be filtering my glacial runoff water really well the next time I'm on a mountain before I drink it, huh? Well... I think that um, I didn't do a risk assessment of the Mount Everest water, but it looked to me that the folks who would be most at risk, unfortunately, are the folks who are going to be going up every year and drinking the glacial water. So if you go once, Brian, I think you'll be okay. But if you start being a a Sherpa for Mount Everest or a Mount Everest porter, you might want to bring some bottled water, I guess. I'm not sure what what the solution is. (laughs) Well, you almost make me want to do it. You know, I've traditionally been of the opinion that we need to give that particular mountain a bit of a break, especially after what happened back in 2019. But after you use the phrase, and I want to get this right, highest mountain in the world, boom, easy. I'm not sure if I should run off and do it or just put you on the same pedestal with the likes of Tenzing Norgay and Conrad Anker. <laughs> well, all credit to the team. They <laughs> they did. They went above and beyond for science. And that is super cool. No, that is really cool. The whole expedition, your work and findings, the rest of the team's work is all really fascinating. And you do know one of these days, as this was part of our first conversation, I am going to find a way to get a grant such that we can look at the changing mountaineering risks and ascent profiles on popular mountains around the world and how they would vary under the different RCP pathways. I have no idea how or when I'm going to pull this off, but I am going to find a way as I'm dying to see you author that research in your free time, of course. (laughs) And I think the mountaineering community would love it as well. Seems to me that Outdoor Magazine, North Face, or Patagonia might be interested in such a study. So calling you guys out directly. I think so. (laughs) All right. All right. I'll just call them right up because, you know, they have a special line for just when I call. It's really cool, actually. It just goes straight to voicemail. (laughs) And in the message, they assure me that they'll call me right back. And come to think about it, they probably have a metric to see how long they can keep my pending requests open because (laughs) I have never heard back. But they assure me that they will. So there's that. No, but in all seriousness, with regards to the clothing manufacturers, have any of the major outdoor brands reached out as a result of your research to you to get more information and maybe start to think about the way they design their clothes? Well, some of these particles are already on their way to being phased out. Okay. I'm not convinced that what they're being phased out for is necessarily better, but they are, you know, being phased out. This Research was carried in GQ and Washington Post, and both of those journalists reached out and asked, I believe, North Face and Patagonia for comment, and they, you know, provided comment. But I have not been given any presents by these companies (laughs) since. So no, no one has reached out to me and Uh, (laughs) expressed congratulations on shaming them. No, no, they don't like (laughs) you. Hey, maybe you'll get the same hotline I have. And I'm I'm sure the folks at Gore-Tex don't like you anymore either, huh? I if they know me, I'm sure they don't they don't care for me. Yes. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Now, as much as I hate to do this, is I am having a 
ball here. We need to wrap things up, but Dr. Miner, this has been such an amazing conversation today, and there's so much more I want to ask and that the audience can benefit from. So I'm going to go out on a limb here, as I know you're beyond incredibly busy. But would you be willing to come back next week, as we never got to zombie fires, and I know you have some research coming out. So what do you say? Can you move some stuff around for us? Yeah, sure, Brian. I love chatting with you. So let's let's do it on the podcast instead of on online. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, as we close out the show, I know you're familiar with the ending, so I'm going to have you help me out. You game? Sure. Let's go. <laughs> okay. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Kimberly Rainminer as much as I did. And be sure to come back next week for an unexpected part two to this conversation. As always, aside from checking out the latest information on our website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, Make sure to keep it south of two degrees.